Welcome to the Legendarium. People who like Todd are going to love this episode. This is fun. And people who hate me are going to be questioning whether or not they should continue to listen. But they'll listen anyway (laughs) so they can say, I can't believe it. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I... to the Legendarium podcast, I guess I should say. Tis the season. Uh, I have some wassail in front of me because my throat kind of hurts. The tree is up. The lights are strong. There's snow on the ground and Christmas in the air. So let's talk about book burning. <laughs> now, uh, before we get there, uh, before we get there, let's introduce everybody else. Uh, there's only two others here today. Well, he's funnier than a barium enema. Barely. It's Ken Johnson. Dude, I am going to go full Montag and fry your butt. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're out on the road feeling lonely and so cold, all you have to do is call his name and the white hot flame of pure hatred will keep you eternally warm. It's Todd Wenty. I will chase you down with my flaming car. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Do you guys get that reference, by the way? Neither of you have watched... Gilmore Girls, apparently. No, no. Oh, no. Okay. I was thinking you were making reference to the Ghost Rider and the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. No. No, but oh. I, I do like that Ghost Rider, though. Well, you know where I'm spending my time, rather than watching <laughs> Gilmore Girls. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we get started, I uh, want to remind everybody, patreon.com slash legendarium, if you are enjoying the show, maybe not this one, because let's be honest, we're not off to the best start here uh but if you enjoy the show please can please consider uh, donating to the cause keep the legendarium going you I don't can know. you can donate on a per episode basis there at patreon.com slash legendarium we generally recommend one three or five dollars per donation but you can give whatever you want uh and we appreciate everybody who has given so far and everybody who will soon by the way guys did you know that we hit 90 percent of our first goal that's wow. Insane. Yeah, I know. That's really cool. Thank you. Thank you, know, you out there. Thank so you very much. I promised them at 100 bucks that we get to shave your head. Uh, no, that was if they did that within a month. So oh, okay. you can back off. And it was cut my hair, which well, I already you know. did. Can potato, we, potato. Can we make a new one? Because uh, I'd like actually, to see an so excuse to thing. have you have your head shaved. I, I, I would love, first of all, if we get to our $100 per episode uh, goal... That's when we're going to start upgrading the uh, the equipment here in the studio and making things a little bit nicer for you to listen to. But I added a new goal, and I'm betting a lot of people haven't seen this yet. Goal number two is $150 per episode. And if we hit that, we are going to start paying every guest a stipend every episode, which is nice because if I'm paying you guys like 20 bucks to show up here and talk <laughs> into the microphone, then I can be an even bigger jerk when you show up unprepared or say stupid things, Ken. Uh, it's going to be fantastic. So, But wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a second. Do we have the ability to do the same to you if you bring up Gilmore Girls comments? No, I'm paying you. <laughs> and by I, I mean our listeners. Uh, anyway, so uh, once again, patreon.com slash legendarium. We really do appreciate everybody's help. Um, and you can check out some of the rewards we have there. Uh, our t-shirts that are going out to the $5 donors are nearly ready. So those will go out soon. Anyway, uh, today we're talking about Fahrenheit 451. This is a Todd episode. It's a Todd pick, and he's going to be leading us through the discussion. And my throat's about to go, so go, Todd. All right. Well, uh, in 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 keeping with our process, let's give a little bit of a little bit of a summary for this, shall we? What would the world look like if we if reading were banned, not by the government, 
but by people. What if we all just stopped reading? Ray Bradbury gives his view of this world in Fahrenheit 451. This short science fiction classic follows Guy Montag in the most disruptive few days of his life. Montag, a fireman, is part of a select group of men who serve to protect the peace and happiness of society. They do, not, they do this not by extinguishing fires, but by starting them, with the intention of extinguishing the unhappiness and dissatisfaction that comes with thinking too much. The targets of their flames are books, banned and censored so extensively that possession of one is a crime of a capital nature. Of course, the most secret thing in the world that discourages owning and reading of books is that Montag himself has amassed a small library. This, along with his insatiable curiosity to know what is in them that is so destructive, makes him a target for elimination by any and all means necessary. The cast of characters in the book serve as mirrors for in which Montag can reflect himself and see the extremes of his own inner conflict. Clarissa and her questions, Captain Beatty and his cynicism and certainty, Faber and his cautious optimism, and Granger with his practical view of the world in chaos. They all help the reader to see Montag as one of a rare few that may hold the key to restoring lost knowledge when all the world has burned itself to ashes. Ooh. Nice. Thank you. Nice. Thank you. Well done. That's a that's a good summary for a change. I so mean, I, that's a good summary. Do you mind Do you mind, Todd, if I ask you the first question, even though this is your your baby? Go ahead. Why did you choose Fahrenheit four fifty one? Okay. This is our this is part of our heroes of sci fi, and so I said, Todd, yeah. pick any sci fi book you want to pick, and this is the one he came up with first. I mean, the first of many. So yeah, I want to hear why. So uh, when when I first read Fahrenheit four fifty one, um, and I called it Fahrenheit four five one for the longest time, but that's that's a different story. Um, I, I read it when I was 16. Um, I, I remember reading it, uh, kind of in seclusion and secrecy because my parents kept telling me to turn the lights out and go to bed. So I wound up reading this literally by flashlight under my covers downstairs in the basement. Um, and, and so there were certain pieces of it that for me became mysterious and spooky and, and impactful as a result of the of the context in which I read it. But there were things about it that never left. One of them was the prediction that Ray Bradbury was giving of a world in the future where televisions would be the size of walls, where interactive, uh, where, where television would be interactive. Um, all of these kinds of ideas of a future not so far removed from our own, but how drastically the twist of those things uh, made society change. The other reason why I really have always loved this book um, for myself as as an example of science fiction, um, but also as a as a fun read, is that it's it's again, the science that drives the fiction. In this case, it's not so much, well, I'll hold off on that. We'll no, we'll uh, talk about dang that. Dang it, I want to hear what you. No, I'll, I'll I'll still give mine, but yeah, I yeah, but yeah. that's a that's a question that I want to talk about. So yeah. Yeah. we'll uh, we'll have some fun with that. But this is I think this is a book um, that that does a wonderful job of letting the science involved drive really what the fiction is all about. So yeah. with with that said, I mean that really was the first question that I have. What, what do you guys see? in this as far as the things that drive the fiction. I mean, I say that there's a science that's involved. Uh, see, and I, like, the science took such a back seat in my mind just because I'm such a, I'm a politically minded person. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, people who have been listening to us for a while 
know this by now. I are you I'd sure? Love to, this isn't a revelation for them. <laughs> I love to talk about, think about, write about, read about politics, and so that was the part that really drove it for me. Was uh, I, I wanted to hear what Bradbury had to say on the subject as the book went on, and to be honest, that made it so that as the book went on, I became less and less interested in mm-hmm. the story simply because he really front loads it with his theory his political theory yep. yeah um, and so that part was really interesting and i'm not saying that stuff is totally gone by the end of the book but it's definitely it, it takes a back seat to some of the things you're talking about i i would say the story you're going to talk about the science of course but <laughs> but uh, let's toss to ken See, and I, I thought it was not the uh, the politics driving the fiction. It was it was the culturally how it drove uh, everything. I mean, Craig Craig saw politics, and and absolutely right. I'm, I I saw it as as uh, the culture driving the story, or or should we say the lack of culture, or the lack of cultural awareness, or the idea. And and uh, I'm deviating for a second here, but Bradbury did say uh, the book was inspired. I, I read. I read something that wasn't the book. Uh-oh. Can you believe Uh-oh. it? Uh-oh. I think but, you may have read the same thing that I was going to bring up in a second. Get out. Probably. And, uh, well, see, <laughs> Bradbury said originally when he wrote the book, it was it was McCarthy era uh, um, w- with the, uh, the the communist hearings and all of that. Mm-hmm. And the, um, what, what, what do they even call it? I, I don't remember what they call it. Anyway, witch hunts. The witch hunts. Thank you. And uh, at later, he saw it as, you know, TV and, and movies and, and the speed at which entertainment is, right. is there just killing the desire to read or or just making making things more concise you, you don't have time for depth you have to just get to the next thing and get it faster and faster and faster and so how the the culture was was being driven out basically by this need for more for faster for for less uh depth and, and everything and uh you mean like having three marvel movies a year yeah right i'm not sure that that's less depth but I, we'll that, get to that that, feels, that feels more in depth but <laughs> But in terms of, he even talks about it in uh, one of Beatty's big long soliloquies about how uh, basically Reader's Digest kills the American novel. That, that's the way I took it. There, how that, yeah, they, how'd that turn out? Well, you, you take yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you take you take the uh, the novel and it's too long. Nobody wants to read it, so you condense it, and so they read it, and then that's too long, and so now it's paragraph size synopsis of the book, and that's cla- that's uh, passed off as literature when in reality it's just you know concise postage stamp version of whatever was actually written. In. You've read a couple of cute quotes, and that's about it. Yeah. Uh, and someone's someone's paid-for analysis. Yeah. So anyway, short story long, it, that, that's basically where we're, I mean, I didn't see it back when I read this 20 years ago or whatever, but now it's like, wow, holy yeah. cow. I, I, with so many things uh, in the world, but this, in this case, Fahrenheit 451 makes me think of, like you're talking about, Ken, the shortening of attention spans. Uh, but it, it makes me think that it's not so much because it feels very prophetic when you're reading this. It feels like, oh, my gosh, that's totally how society works now. But especially, yeah, especially I would reading say it now. You're that's right. how a certain part of society works and a, a big part of society. But there's a sort of a split that happens. And there are those who um, I, I will call out things that I actually enjoy so that I'm not you know, just crapping all over other people, but <laughs> things like The Bachelor, things like HGTV, how many episodes of Law & Order SVU can you fit into your life? You know, it, there's this there's this part of our culture that loves those really rapid fire, kind of shallow, vapid, in one ear and out the other 
pieces of entertainment. Well, it's a but larger, then there's then there's another part that enjoys things like I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a Sanderson fan. And you look at something like Words of Radiance or the upcoming Oathbringer that's <sighs> going to be just massive. Yes. So much to dig through. And uh, you know, and so the only thing that was holding society back from works of that length was printing costs. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, you take something like Lord of the Rings. Why was it split into three tomes? Printing costs. Mm -hmm. That's it. Uh, And so nowadays we have the capability to create bigger and longer things. It used to be people could only sit still for an all in the family that took, you know, 23 minutes minutes to, to show you or a half hour with commercials. And now people are eating up Netflix shows like Stranger Things that it's an eight hour movie. And people will sit and watch the entire thing and, you know, want to discuss that with people and want to dig deeper. Anyway, my point is just that there, yes, it is prophetic in a way, but there's another thing happening that can pull you away from the surface level vapid stuff if you let it. Yes. And I've always been a big proponent of the three levels theory that we talk about Mm -hmm. sometimes and, and the level one being the... The Pacific Rim, punch, punch, who cares, in one ear, out the other kind of thing. And I actually like that stuff in moderation. But we have to just be willing to go to the level two, the level three, the deeper stuff, the... Uh, do you know what I'm saying? A steady yeah. diet of a steady diet of level one entertainment does not build a better society. It doesn't build better people. No, it breaks it down. It it does, and it and it gets it to a point where where things fall apart on lots of levels. It's like eating nonstop sugar. So, from going back to the question, the 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 science most Sorry. of the time <laughs> I pulled you away right quick, didn't I? That's it? okay. I'm 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 capable of controlling a conversation. <laughs> Far be it from anyone to believe that. Um, yeah, one, we'll see. <laughs> thank you. Challenge accepted. <laughs> so, so uh, tangent. I, I kind of expect for our listeners who who have seen on a number of occasions that I have been responsible from derailing conversations and listening to Craig say, "Oh, I hate you all so much right now." <laughs> I kind of expected that this was going to be one of those where Craig's going to do that to me all day long. So I'm used to that. I'm prepared for it. I'm ready. Oh no, it's your show, man. <laughs> anyway, that when we think about science fiction, oftentimes we think. Um, hard sciences. We think about physics. We think about space travel. We think about uh, we think about terraforming and resettling other planets as the science that must drive the fiction. In this particular case, um, Ken, you, you're right on. You're hitting it right on the money. The the science that drives this piece is sociology. It's the it's the science of how people interact with each other. In fact, it was uh, interestingly enough, I was reading uh, another piece by Ray Bradbury, an interview that he gave uh, back in 2007. Oh, that must have been right before he died. It was. 2010, maybe? He was, he was, he was like 82, I think. He was, he was old. Um, He was in his 80s when he was giving this interview. Uh, And they said, uh, he said and they were going to be presenting him with a uh, with a literary award uh, at UCLA. And he said, may Did I... Did he burn it? Oh, he should have burned it. He said, will I be allowed to make a few statements? Um, and they said, no. And he said, well, then I won't be there to receive it. Um, and, and the reason was because so much of the commentary about Fahrenheit 451 has been that it is a book about censorship. Uh, which was very much about the McCarthy era, uh, very much about government censoring materials. And uh, Bradbury, um, this is a quote from the article, 
um, says this despite the fact that uh, reviews and critiques and essays over the decade have said it's precisely what it's all about. Even Bradbury's author, uh, auto- authorized biographer, says it's a book about censorship. Bradbury, a man living in the creative industrial center of reality TV and one-hour dramas, says it is in fact a story about how television destroys interest in reading. So the things that you're hitting on, this idea that that there is a split that has occurred because further on in the article it says that he had to come face to face with the fact that more and different television has actually stimulated a higher interest in books and a consumption of a different kind of literature over the years. It's been a really interesting deal. Um, Again, the book was written in 1953. Do you... uh, Sorry, finish your point and Uh, then I'll ask you a question. Because it was... and, And because of that location, because of that period of time, the the advent of the television was was uh, in its it, it was in its infancy. Not not the the majority of the American public did not have access easy access to television. Most television programming at that point in time was uh, very entertainment related yeah. with snippets of news. So the medium in its infancy looked like it really could destroy all intelligent thought and that was what bradbury was saying hey if we if we're not careful our culture is going to drive us to this point and it won't be government that does it it'll be us that does it to ourselves so do you feel like there's because you mentioned the idea that television has actually in a way uh encouraged society to read more uh well tell i i should lump television and movies together uh, in a way, but it, did you you said something along those lines, or or Bradbury did? Yeah, Bradbury said that he believed that it would that it would kill it. But as we as we look at the development of the medium, um, there are a lot of there there has been a spike, an up spike, an uptick right. in consumption of written material. So my question would be, what about the quality of that written material? I wonder if. The damage being done, if Bray Bray Brad Bray Bray use your words, Craig. Use your words. I wonder if he was right in some way in that the average quality of stuff being read is down. Now, I don't know that that's the case. I'm not here to argue that that's the case. But I wonder if somebody, especially somebody who's really snooty and reads what some people like to call literary fiction, which makes me want to stab people. Uh, but if, if somebody would say, well, yeah, I mean, all these people reading Harry Potter or whatever, you know, look down their nose at these people because that's the sort of thing that it gets us, that, that video games get us to read, that movies get us to read. People love Warhammer books and people love the, the uh, like Warcraft novelizations and stuff like that. Anyway, so I, I, I pose the question to you, sir. So I, and, and I, I appreciate that. I think that um, one of the things that has happened with, with written media or with the consumption of written media um, and the development of some of the different televised pieces that we've got, whether, that, whether it's YouTube, uh, streaming media that we've got available to us now, which, of course, during Bradbury's time, he wasn't even thinking about. Um, he was thinking about it just from a from a network standpoint. I I, I, I was going to disagree with you just a little bit in the sense that his his view of what was coming is is pretty. I'm I'm impressed with the, the what he saw. He's done anyway, a wonder. Continue. He, he did a wonderful job of predicting parts of it. Yeah. But the thing that I di- that uh, that has also happened along with that is the access to printed material 
um, spurred new industries. Um, yes. at, at one point in the book, um, Beatty makes reference uh, during during Beatty's lecture to him about how all of this happened, how society developed to a point where books were banned. He said, "We'll keep the comic books, uh, and you'll keep your sex magazines. You'll you'll keep all of these because they're entertainment." But I have seen uh, in the world of the graphic novels. Um, and sex magazines. Uh, I'm not even going to go to the sex <laughs> magazines. I have, uh, but I will say this the, with the I graphic read novels. read for the articles. <laughs> um, that, we've, that we've seen those being used um, to approach and to, and to uh, uh, introduce people, uh, specifically readers, and in many cases young readers, to literature that they might not otherwise have seen, and in some cases drives them to the actual original written material. Yes. Uh, Marvel's been doing this successfully since the 70s. Um, they did it with before they were called graphic novels. They were called uh, they were called adaptations, comic book adaptations of things like the Island of Doctor Moreau, right? Um, uh, the first Men in the Moon, uh, a Jules Verne classic, and those have been those have been uh, pieces that have been done to drive. In fact, I think there was a comic novelization of Fahrenheit 451. Um, I I don't have access to it, but I remember I seeing say, I pieces. I have to remember, but I think you're right. Um, so it, it's it's interesting that in spite of the idea that those things would be allowed because they are sheer entertainment, they've actually driven uh, attention in other directions. Also, um, let's be honest. Uh, the Hobbit, uh, the the adaptation of The Hobbit that we saw Peter Jackson do. Of which we do not speak, Todd. Of, uh, <laughs> we need to for this case because... People who went to see that, who had never read the books, turned around and said, what? What did I miss? And we say, go back and read the book. Uh, and then they and get an opportunity. And people who read the book went, what? <laughs> I got to go back and read the book and make sure more people read the book. Um, uh, anytime, a, anytime a movie uh, is adapted from, from a book, it always spurs attention back to the book. And I think I think based on uh, readership, we see an increase in readership when novel when when novels are turned into movies, whether for TV or for movies, yeah, uh, for theaters. I think it it actually drives greater attention to the written word. So uh, there's a there's something special about reading, mm-hmm. or I, I should say, I'm kind of of two minds. I'm of of that opinion. There is something special about reading, and I don't know what it is. And I'm talking about reading long form. Yeah. You know, novels or, or nonfiction or whatever. There is something special about it. But when we get down to the core of what we're doing, we're when we read these long form things, we're being presented with ideas and situations. And we're getting the same thing from something like a comic book or a TV show or a movie. I'm wondering why, what is that something special about reading? Why does that seem to... Uh, you know, make people smarter and better people and all this stuff. I don't get it. And I think it's, I, I think you hit on it earlier today. Um, and we hit on it frequently in the podcast. And well, that is. It hits on, on it. In the Ken book, hits too. on. He does. Yeah. Ken hits on he anything does. that moves. He, so. <laughs> don't tell Jolene that she might be listening. Um, <laughs> it's, it's level three. It's that when we read, that's the places typically that we are presented with information in level three. Ah, but, 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 but. Why then, if you read, oh gosh, if you read War and Peace and then you watch the adaptation of War and Peace, they're going to put a lot of the same themes and concepts and ideas into the adaptation. 
but we don't get as much out of that adaptation as we do from the novel itself. I wonder why that is. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think part of it is that, um, and, and, and of course somebody some grad student in, uh, you know, neuropsychology is, or if that's even a thing is screaming at us right now. Right. I know the answer. Or, 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 or somebody that's taking a, uh, a history of film class is probably right. doing the same thing, but <laughs> exactly. probably from different perspectives. <laughs> um, Ray Bradbury actually talks, talks about it in the book and I can't find the specific highlighted, uh, location, but one of the things that he says, it's in uh, Montag's conversation with Faber. Yeah. Faber. I, anyway. And Faber says, you know, when you're, when you're reading a book, if you come to something, you can close it and then you can come back to it and then you can close it and you can come back to it and you, you can continue to go back to it until you feel like you've really explored it. But when we get it presented to us on, in movie or in television, especially in the television that Ray Bradbury was, was dramatizing in this book, mm -hmm. it comes and it goes and it's beyond you so fast that, that uh, there's no opportunity really for the simmering of that information in your brain. You don't, you don't let it take time to really contemplate and say, hmm, do I really agree with this or not? I could buy that. And I think that's why, uh, but that's also why, like I say, the film student might be arguing with us depending on the film. Sure. And depending on the way the film is executed, um, we can get the same kind of experience. But I, I think it's fair to say in broad strokes, you know, this is how it operates. But totally agreed. Totally agreed. Because most films, including some of the ones that we have really enjoyed on the some, podcast. Some, all of the ones that we ever talk about. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> are, are very much... Fast moving, they're going to touch on level three, maybe at best for 30 seconds out of a two and a half hour movie. But but all of us even still come away from it saying, wow, that was a that was a rip snorting good time. That was a right. ripping good yarn. Um, and then we get back into our. And then we come into here and then we say, hmm. <laughs> I was going to say, then we go back to reading, you know, Brandon Sanderson, Sanderson or Tolkien or yep. whatever. So. Ken, Ken actually has opened his book. I'm curious to see what whoa, he's found. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Ken, is that a physical book? Not only that, but look at this one. Oh it's been... Gosh. Oh, wait, no. Yeah. I checked it out of the library. I did. I checked it from the library. I'm so proud of you. I have this. I'm, I'm glad. I'm let's, glad. Let's burn it. <laughs> Here you go. Let's burn Ken. Oh, okay. I've been there Quick, before. Quick, put it in his pants. Light it on fire. <laughs> I, want, I want it to be known that Craig was the one that went there. Oh, I'm always I'm there. Say. Not, not your pants specifically. Oh, yeah. But... Crap, why I did I say words? so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I just had you to know, say it. I just I, had to say it. I, it's, it's, at a, it's at about this moment that all of our listeners go, uh, oh, I miss Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lonely voice of reason on the Legendarian podcast. More often than not, he's over there shaking his head. Oh, my gosh. And trying to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> all right. Here. here. I'm, I'm steering us back. Do you know why books such as this are so important? Because they have quality. And what does the word quality mean? It To me, it means texture. The book has pores. It has features. The book, This book can go under the microscope. You can, you'd find life under the glass streaming past in infinite profusion. The more pores, the more truthfully recorded details of life per square inch you can get on a sheet of paper, the more literary you are. That's my definition anyway. Telling detail, fresh detail. The good writers touch life often. Yep. Faber's one, two, three. His yep. one, two, three of why books. So, so let me so, ask. A, so give me the one, two, three again. All right. Just like sum it up. Uh, number one, they have texture. Number two, uh, for leisure, and number three. See this? I'm I'm reading as we go. Be smarter, Ken. 
I didn't write the third one down. Okay. Um, <laughs> so number two, Leisure to Digest, and number three was something. We'll pretend it's something. All right. Ken will keep looking for it while I ask this next question. There next you go. Let's question. Do that. Um, so what did you think about his style, about Ray Bradbury's writing <laughs> oh style? Oh, my gosh. That is something we don't really have around anymore uh, <laughs> so much. <laughs> um, it was very... I, I was, it took me a few pages to get into it because I was like, oh my gosh, let it go, man. It, it, it's, there's a quote that I, I don't know that I've read. Uh, yeah, I have read it uh, on the podcast uh, out loud before, but I share it fairly often and it's about prose versus poetry. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons I love Sanderson's prose so much, for instance, is that it is so functional that it gets out of the way. You never... I think the end of the quote is something like uh, the best prose in the, in the best prose, the reader is led along in such a way that they never stop to applaud the author. Neither do they stop to question him. And Bradbury does not write that way. No, no. no. He writes poetry in yes. paragraph form. Yes, he does. And so that um, it's not my favorite style. But I recognize that he does it very well. Nor and, was it mine. And and that's Same a reason. and I I kind of I kind of wondered if if that would be a, a response and if and if any of our other readers out there I I, I would imagine that that's a, a a fairly clear line that divides people those who like it and those who go wow yeah let me read something else please. But you know what once you once you look at it as a writing style and kind of push past it and push past the, the, just the style, the surface style and say, okay, let's see what he's saying here. You really get into it and you, you understand the story past, you know, necessarily what he's saying. And, and that's fine. It, I don't know if push past. I don't it know what right you're word, saying, but, but that's fine. No, I get it. But I, but I also I see that you've got, you. <laughs> you've got the book open. Did you find number three? Uh, yeah. No. So number one, quality of information. Number two, leisure to digest it. And number three, the right to carry out actions based on what we learn. From right. the interaction of the first two. So there you go. now that we've got that out of the way, um, going back to Bradbury's style, one of the things that's very interesting is that Bradbury doesn't write in this style exclusively. Um, some of his other works, one of, one of his other uh, pieces that, uh, again, I think is a masterful work of science fiction, The Martian Chronicles, um, which itself was turned into a four-hour miniseries in the 1980s by one of the major networks, which I find <laughs> beautifully, uh, uh, beautifully juxtaposed with his attitudes about television. <laughs> um, but uh, his his writing style in the Martian Chronicles, uh, while it has elements of this much more uh, poetic style, becomes much more functional, and it, it's an illustration that I think for the purposes of this book because his contention was that television was going to that, that the functionality of a television screenplay of television script writing of television storytelling was going to drive us away from the more literary um, storytelling that would exist in novelization form and so uh, while I have not had the opportunity to question the author on this topic um, I think this was probably as much a choice as it was a default writing style for him. Because if you look at some right. of his other material, it, it, much of his other material doesn't follow the same kind of pattern, but it very much is in this book. I have more I want to say about his writing style. Oh, yeah, I remember what I wanted to say. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about it is that because of his style, because poetry is by nature more condensed than prose, mm -hmm. 
the book turned out to be what 250 pages and if he if he had written this in sanderson style this book would have been 700 pages yeah. at least um, okay. but one of the things that's nice is that you po- poetry as i'm using the word I, I i know this is prose but let's get real it's poetical in its nature um but it's it's highly descriptive which is really helpful right up front uh, for somebody like bradbury who wants to tell a sort of cautionary tale Mm -hmm. in as short a time as possible he's not here you know modern day authors are often trying to build a brand they're trying to build a a literary ecosystem that people want to come back to again and again and again he's simply trying to make a point and so it's nice that he is able to do so quickly and shortly Uh, right at the beginning of the novel i was interested in how differently he described uh the different parts of of uh society that's uh, that's presented in the novel here so when he talks about things like burning books when he talks about the firemen when he talks about the mechanical dog it's very the language he uses is very technological it's very rigid and structured and uh, you know, you can almost hear the beeps and boops of the robots coming through. And then he has the conversation with, what's the girl's name at the beginning? Clarice. 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 He, has the, he has the conversation with her and, um, and he describes her as, I'm trying to remember, she smells like apricots and her face looks like snow under the, under, under the a moonlight. white moon. Yeah. yeah. And so, which has its own interesting things to talk about but uh but it it gives you an immediate sense of the difference between in in mindset without having to go through 150 pages of explaining all that yeah and world building and all that stuff right so it's effective in its own way even if it's not my personally preferred style and one of the other things that i really liked about um the way he approached it it was in many ways reminiscent of starship troopers there was more discussion of the people than there was of the tech Right. Um, yes. This was one, one of the things that we are, I think, that we are expecting of in a science fiction, uh, in a science fiction piece is that there will be a lot of time and attention given to the technology, how the technology works. And we judge, we have a tendency, when I say we, I mean science fiction snobs, have a tendency to judge science fiction uh, on how well they describe the working of the technology versing, versus just using the technology to tell the story and move it along. Yeah. Um, the, the, the distinction of space opera and science fiction is one that I've made a couple of times, and it, and it has everything to do with whether we accept the technology and just run with it, or if we try and explain why the technology works and that causes the conflict. Um, but in this case... The technology is all about, the, or the science that is involved is all about people. It's all about the way that people see things. And so his need to describe how the cars work or how they look, they're, they're beetles. They're all beetles, right. um, which I found interesting in 1953. Because the Germans well, won. The Germans, yeah. <laughs> um, exactly, the Volkswagen Beagle. Beetle was uh, huge. Al- although they would never have moved at, uh, th- those Beetles would never have moved at 90 or 120 <laughs> or 130 miles an hour. That was, can we, can we talk about the things that he saw for the future? Just a second. Because I, I want to talk about But that. But it is, it is interesting that he makes certain kinds of assumptions that for his time stayed consistent. Um, the valuation of money, um, you know, the, the idea that the walls cost $2,000. Well, that's not too far off of what they cost right now. But versus what Montag said his annual salary yeah, but was. that was a third of his salary. Was, so. 
you know, completely uh, disproportionate. Uh, but they were things that he knew and things that could help him ground his story so that he could talk about the people more than spending the time talking about technology, about economics, about, uh, about the growth pattern of, of the way society would move. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting, the choices that he makes um, in how he's going to approach those issues of what does he talk about? What does he not talk about? What do we leave to the writers, the reader's imagination? Um, and that was a fun one. So yeah. Ken, take it away. What were you going to say? Oh, the, the, just the things, the technological things. Uh, well, and I was going to say the cultural things that he got right versus what he got wrong. Uh, um, wrong. I th- I'll tell you the things that creep me out the most were the mechanical dog and the mechanical sneaky thing. Right. That were both alive and not alive. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he's referencing AI or if he's referencing some sort of like grafting technology onto living beings or something, but... But they were super creepy. Uh, but also, I wouldn't mind having a little, uh, you know, poison-fetching snake <laughs> to hang around. Yeah, because I know Ryan's out to get me, basically. Well, so. I, don't, I don't know. I think that was just the way he was picturing it, personally. Not that necessarily that it was alive, but as it was one of those, you know, I, you see a- weird technology and go. Yeah. Autonomous functioning. Autonomous functioning, but non-organic. Right. And yeah. I think that's, for me, that was always AI. what he was talking about with with this idea of um, alive and not alive. The idea that a dog could be, that a hound could be programmed to seek 10,000 different people with DNA samples. Um, is, is the hound a stand-in for society as he saw it going? Alive and not alive, programmable. I wonder. Sing, well, maybe. Singular function. I'm, I have entirely possible. I have not looked up enough um, critiques of that to see if anybody asked him that yeah. question. It's, I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, you go back to the McCarthy era. Why do, why did people fear communism so much? Uh, one of the things that was repellent to uh, Americans writ large was the idea of people as widgets. Yes, the loss of uh, where of you can, you can, a person exists to drive the machine of the state. And so you train them to do a specific thing. And that's, you know, so this idea that a person is both, you know, machine and man twisted and evil. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm just kidding. But uh, I I wonder if uh, there was something there. It it, it certainly is a, it certainly is a piece that, uh, that fits with the the construction of that time period. Well, and certainly nowadays we have, you know, robotic creations that, you know, can in, in at least some capacity make, decisions based on the based on algorithms based on the algorithms that they have programmed into them exactly and make it look like something that that um at least simulates rational thought you know must kill can (laughs) so you'll get that robot right eventually so (laughs) was there was there a scene that was particularly powerful for you guys in this particular book one that you're going to take away and remember the woman that died in the flames okay yeah oh my gosh that's that was, I, I mean, if only because in practical terms, no, I, I can't sympathize with that. I, I probably would not burn to death um, rather than leave my books. I love no. my books, but I probably wouldn't do that. But on an, uh, on an ideological level, I'm like, yeah, you go, you go, girl. Well, in, I've in, never said that in my life, obviously. And please don't ever again. <laughs> but All of the people watching in, Gilmore Girls are saying, please <laughs> stop him. In her particular case, though, I mean, it was death or death anyway, because they were going right. to they were going to take her out and and execute her via hound. Sure. Anyway, and basically, so it was burn here or 
don't know, just that, that image. I, I have you seen the, that. Have you seen the movie? Uh, the 1966 no. movie? <laughs> have have, you've seen it, haven't you? Uh, awful movie. Yes, it's it's not it's it's, it's, it's not, not a high point up, of cinema. <laughs> it is not held up well either. But that even even in the movie that scene it's disturbing. is disturbing. It's disturbing. It's disturbing in the book. It's disturbing in the movie. I gotta say, this is um, another example of like I know that there's a freaking like nuclear bomb later and all sorts of stuff and right. crazy stuff happens. But it seems like that first section out of the the three sections. That was where it really held my interest, and most of the images are going to remain, I think. Okay. It was from that first part. It did for me as well. Okay. Yeah, the second and third, I mean, we're good, but all of the development, I guess, for for lack of a better term, was in the first section, and that's where a lot of the, well, and I guess as it's supposed to, a lot of the buildup happened in that first First section. So, so uh, personally, my 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 favorite scene, the one that the one that stays with me the most, uh, and that stayed with me through the first reading decades ago, and that when I came back to it again, I was like, oh, I feel all warm and fuzzy inside because I love the scene. It's the scene at the end where Granger and Montag are having their conversation right before they're going to head back into the city, and he says, "Eh, Phoenix." And Montag looks at him and goes, what? And he says, ah, there was this silly, stupid bird that used to build a pyre and burn itself to death. And then it would <laughs> yeah. be reborn. And and they, they have this conversation, this matter-of-fact conversation, when he says, you're not more important than anyone else. You just are the carrier of this information. And when we need it again, we're gonna, we want it back from you. But you have to remember, you're not better than anybody else because you've got it. You just happen to be the carrier. Now let's go back and and see if we can save society from itself. I mean that that scene for me of of this very pragmatic, um, you know, we we're we're going to do what we have to do. We're going to make things work, um, not in a communist sense, which obviously could have been uh, misconstrued during that period of time. Right. Um, but from a from a very uh, a, a very human perspective, that. That life is important. All life, all all of the lives that we have are important. But right now, you serve a purpose, and that purpose is to be ready when we call on you. And in the rest of it, just fill a purpose and help move life forward. Help help rebuild society. Let's go make this work. Make lots of babies. Yes, exactly. Which is something that they said at the end of Battlestar Galactica, or the end of the <laughs> Battlestar Galactica four-hour miniseries. Um, so, was there anything that you're going to take away from this book? And I, I guess the other thing that I would ask is, do you think this one's going to hold up for another fifty years? I have. Wow! I threw Craig a stumper. Well, I have. I have a hard time seeing it holding up. I, I think it'll still be something worth reading, in in this in the broader sense of of pay attention to your culture, you know, and actually go ahead and pick up a book and think about something once in a while because you know you lose it if you if you don't use it. But overall, I'm like, eh, you know, it, looking at where it was written from, it's it's good reading, but. It's not, I don't know if it's epic it, As long as it is assigned to high school classes and college <laughs> classes, it will survive. But uh, if it if that ever stops, people will stop reading it, uh, which will be too bad. I think uh, I, I'll once again compare it to something like the Stormlight Archive that we read earlier. There's uh, a lot of similar ideas maybe not book burning per se but a lot of uh, a lot of pretty deep ideas are embedded in a story like that 
but in the Stormlight Archive, they're well, they're embedded, and there's a story that you're reading, and that you can just kind of read that surface level thing, and you've got to dig to get to these gems. And I like that there are books out there that people still read like this that are obviously about a thing. Yeah. Issue driven rather than and rather than than story driven. driven. Right. Yeah. Um, so you read something like this or uh, to use another dystopian novel, 1984. Yeah, there's a story there, but it's not so much about the story as it is about the ideology contained within it uh, you know the concept that the author is trying to drive into your skull and so i i find that really refreshing to come to every once in a while and the way that that books are being written now that is really not the style correct right yeah i'd I'd agree with that yeah the style now is we talk about television's influence on writing well the style is now it feels very much like watching a movie or watching a, a long television show. And watching yeah. an art film, I think, in some ways, th- this book does. Oh, this book, sure. Yeah. 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 Because, because, because much of, especially if we were to compare it to a, a Brandon Sanderson book, um, you know, the, the, the fight between uh, Montag and the dog in a Brandon <laughs> <Right>. Sanderson book <laughs> could have been... Uh, Twenty five pages could have been yeah. could have been its own chapter, right. and and he dispenses with it in two paragraphs, um, because and it's pretty darn compelling too. It, it's a it's a pretty intense couple of paragraphs, but he's going to get that out of the way so that he can go back. That's to not what the this book is about. Bigger, yeah, to yeah. this yeah. issue, it's issue driven rather than narrative driven. And I it, and I don't want anybody listening to misunderstand me. I actually probably prefer the Sanderson method because I think story is incredibly important uh, on a personal and a societal level. I think stories are vital, but um, just like you can't, uh, you can't sit in level one all the time, you also can't sit in level three all the time. You yeah. have to be able to bounce around um, yeah. to, to different levels. And, and for me... Um, as far as whether I think it will still be relevant in 50 years, my answer to that would probably be, it depends on if I'm still around in 50 years. Um, I, I think I, I, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, uh, I think Oh, no, no, no. I, (laughs) I'm saying we're 45 minutes in. I I knew, I knew, but but I was also, I I was also using that as a moment to say, oh, 45. Yeah. You think I'm young. Um, (laughs) so, um, I, I, I think when. Uh, I, th- I think at some point um, there will there will always be people um, and and I you know I'm, I hesitate to say this because this is kind of uh, the indication in the book of what drove society to get to a point where it started to burn books and all of this kind of stuff uh, was because people started to think that they were better than others. That's not what I'm trying to say at this point either. Uh, but I think that there will be people through throughout uh as as time continues to go on who will say oh if you like that you ought to pick up fahrenheit 451 you ought to take a look at it Mm -hmm. if you like these ideas and you want a different perspective on what this means you ought to pick it up and i think to that extent um the book will still the the book will remain as relevant as it is today although even if it's not as widely read um yeah you know i think that I think that the the reading of a book will uh, it ebbs and flows. Um, we look at a lot of things that um, that are required reading. They become required reading because they survive 
uh, in the minds of the people who select the curriculum. And I think that um, to because because let's be honest. <laughs> and the book burners are choosing the curriculum now. Well, and and um, you know I go back and I I I think that there are a, a large number of people who never read the Odyssey. But when they went and they saw, oh, brother, where art thou? <laughs> right. They right. found that the Coen brothers had taken that story and turned it into a really fun film that related to them. I think we will find that the, that the choice to read this material will change over time based on who else chooses to champion the issues that are involved in it and where else those issues get championed. Um, I think you'll find that there will be an ebb and flow Somewhere along the line, somebody's gonna gonna get a wild hair. They're gonna write something, and they're gonna say this was inspired by Fahrenheit 451. And all of a sudden, we're gonna have 20 to 30 years of people buying that book and getting it off the shelves every time they turn around. Uh, much the same way that Kurosawa films have their resurgence in popularity every time Keanu Reeves releases another one and says this was influenced by Kurosawa. <laughs> right. All right. All right. So there you go, Fahrenheit 451. So do we want to do some final thoughts? Good book. I was going to say just the same thing. Ken, go. Uh, I think this book is long overdue for a movie ad- adaptation. I see that in the next five years. Really? Yeah. I do not. I do. I nope. Th- I, I think we need to talk then. So. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's already had a couple of video game ad- adaptations. I think a movie is in the offing. Yeah, maybe. I'm just saying. Maybe. Right. When, when, you, when it happens you know, before 2000... 21 let me know uh so i've got a few final thoughts i'll do them rapid fire number one uh, i was reminded during our earlier discussion why haven't we read the hobbit as a podcast yet this is unbelievable uh so that's weird second this is what (laughs) fahrenheit 451 makes you think of the hobbit no we were talking about the hobbit earlier (laughs) oh okay okay i've just been sitting on that one for a little while like i can't believe we haven't read that yet uh people listening to this Todd did you know that you are our most divisive uh, panelist I'm not surprised (laughs) I was just thinking like wow this is a Todd heavy episode so people who like Todd are going to love this episode this is fun and people who hate me are going to be questioning whether or not they should continue to listen (laughs) but they'll listen anyway so they can say I can't believe it no there are there are some serious Todd fans out there so to all the Todd fans I would say um, we're going to continue the, the Heroes of Sci-Fi and series. And all the Todd haters. And all, those are all Todd episodes. There are a lot of Todd so. fans, and for the record, at least 50% of us in this room are. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nicely done, Ken. Nicely done. And let's see, what else? Okay, if you are if you want to s- see something kind of cool, I never knew this was a thing. You would know this is a thing if you're one of those um, uh, film school students or something. But the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. I didn't know that that was a, a thing. It's a the name is pretty recently coined. Uh, as of there was a, a movie back in like two thousand five called Elizabeth Town. Oh yeah yeah and yeah. Kirsten Dunst plays oh, yeah, yeah. what one reviewer called the manic pixie dream girl, yeah. who exists only to help the the brooding questioning man in the story <laughs> discover what life is really like and what it's all about. And that's what Clarice is Clarice, in, yeah. in this story. Um, Anyway, it's there are all sorts of things like that, but I, I thought that was a fun term to use for Clarice in this <laughs> in this book. I do like that. I like that. Um, final, final, final thought <laughs> is that I just wanted to get this one in. Um, everybody knows who listens to this. I'm a huge Tolkien nerd, 
And so I'm always on the lookout for things that remind me of Tolkien. And one of the things that I came up with in this was, and we've touched around the edges of this concept in our discussion already, but um, the idea of the machine versus nature. Mm-hmm. And the, there's that part I was talking about earlier where everything is uh, everything is described very clinically and then he meets Clarice and things are very natural and everything reminds him of natural things, apricots and snow yeah. and the moon. And, and dandelions. They, exactly. Anyway, and I love that concept and I wanted to point out that there's a difference and I think Bradbury, I'm just going to go ahead and put words in his mouth because I think he would say that much like Tolkien would have said, there's a difference between technology and the machine and that technology is not inherently bad uh, and isn't something that's inherently opposed to nature. Technology is technology. But so a television is technology, but TV as a concept, as a, you know, as what's shown on TV in Bradbury's mind, that's the machine. Does that make sense? Yes, it yes. does. And so I, I guess one of the things that I would take that I've uh, that I try to take out of Tolkien, and one of the things I'll remember from this, is that concept that Bradbury presented here, or that I feel like he did, which is that there is a difference between technology and the machine, that we should pursue technology for good ends, but don't give in to the machine. I like that. Yeah. So you're saying rage against the machine. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The machine in Tolkien, the machine is the opposite of magic. It's, it's like dark magic. Anyway, fascinating stuff. Nice. So I'm done. Very cool. And uh, because this was my episode, my final thought would be take time to think. Um, That's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to continue to take from this and take again that uh, that thinking is is the goal. Uh, thinking for yourself, thinking, questioning, trying to understand, and recognizing that that is a messy but inherently valuable and human process. Done. Nice. Shall we call it? Call Let's it. Let's do it. All right. Um, everybody, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for joining us as we hopped back into the Heroes of Sci-Fi. We did this, gosh, did we go almost all the way through 2016 without, um, or 2016, I guess we're calling it, without ever doing a sci-fi novel. We did. Yeah, Crazy. We did. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we got back to it, and we'll do more of these as we move into 2017. Uh, so if you like them, great. And if you don't, well, just skip those ones. Just remember, you Todd haters, I wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Next week we are doing, well, we're doing something. Uh, is there it's a part two is of there The a Great little, Hunt? Is there no. A, is there a little movie coming oh, no, out that's next week? week? Well, Star Wars is coming out. We actually are not planning to devote an episode to Star Wars. We're probably going to put that on our Facebook Oh, that's uh, right. That's live. right. So we'll do a little Facebook live video right Chances after we get are, out of the you'll theater. You'll get some rapid reaction. What Ar- we're doing next week is the Emperor's Soul. That's, That's right. right. Ars Arcanum. Yeah. From, Arcanum Unbounded. Right. From yes. uh, Brandon Sanderson. We're doing the Emperor's Soul. And then Christmas weekend, we or the, the day after. So Boxing yeah. Day will be um, The Great Hunt Part 2. So people can, people can look forward to that. You Wheel of Time lovers out there. Uh, and that should about do it. So thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth.